now will be forever the method. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor and helping to support the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, just go to bodybuildinglegendshow.com, which is our official website. And in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the link to becoming a Patreon donor or check out the link in the description below and you can sign up there. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Mr. Brian Moss, who was the founder of Better Bodies Gym in New York City. And Brian was also very instrumental in helping women get involved with bodybuilding. And Brian has been involved with the industry for a long time, over 40 years. And now he is still involved in the industry as a photographer. So I've known about Brian for many years, of course. I've reading the magazines all these years, but it was the first time I got a chance to meet him. And we had a great conversation. In fact, we talked for so long, we will have two parts of this interview, part one and part two. So on today's show, we're going to talk about how Brian got involved in the gym business and uh, his thoughts on women's bodybuilding when it started in its heyday in 1980s. Brian was also in a relationship and friends with Gladys Portuguese, who was one of the top female bodybuilders in the country, in the world. Back in the early 1980s, she was a very beautiful lady. She was in a lot of the magazines. So I have an article that we're going to read right after we get done with part one of our interview with Brian. This comes from the May 1985 issue of Flex Magazine, and it's called Introducing the New Improved Gladys Portuguese by Bill Dobbins. So stay tuned after our interview with Brian, and we will read that. All right. What else is going on out there, guys? It's getting very hot out here in Tampa, Florida. Of course, it is July. Happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. We are now halfway through 2023, if you can believe it. We had a couple birthdays last week. Tom Platts turned 68 years old on June 26th last week. And one day later, Lance Strayer turned also 68 years old on June 27th. Tom and Lance go way back to the 1974 Teenage Mr. America, where Tom took second place and Lance took fourth place. And that contest was won by Dan Tobel, who I thought at the time kind of was weak on the legs. But Dan actually went on to compete for several more years. I think he was in the Mr. USA contest that Manuel Perry won in 1976, I believe. But Dan looked good. He had a pretty good physique. I don't know whatever happened to him. He just never went farther than that. But he was pretty big for a young guy. But anyways, happy birthday to Tom Platts and Lance Dreher. Hope you guys are doing good. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed our interview last week with Jerry Branham, where we talked about part two of the Arnold documentary that is now playing on Netflix. I did put part one, the video version of our interview, up on YouTube. So I'm going to read some comments from that in a second. I also got a couple emails. If you guys are interested in emailing me, just do that at naturalolympia at gmail.com. And I will read your emails on the air. So let me read a couple of these emails we got last week. This one is from Kirk Dotson. He says, hey, John, no real question. Just a big thank you for your YouTube videos. 
I'm a 56-year-old physician who began bodybuilding at age 15. Picking up the weights absolutely changed my life. I used to purchase the muscle mag back in the day and read them cover to cover repeatedly. Somehow I just discovered your YouTube, and I thoroughly enjoyed hearing about the guys I used to look up to. Keep up the great work. Not sure when I'll be able to get through all your vids. Going to take a look now and see if your books are available electronically. Yes, they are, Kirk. You can get them on Amazon, or you can get them through my website, johnhansonfitness.com. Also, uh, bodybuildinglegendsshow.com. We also have the books available there as well. Timothy Chris says, hey, John, I've listened to all your podcasts. What great information and stories. You said that you have some old Ironman mags, that the Perry Raider ones. Could you send me a list of what you have? I always like them. By the way, last November, I competed in my last bodybuilding show after 50 years of bodybuilding. I got a surprise. Gary Udit gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. What a great award. I will always follow and go to the shows. Bodybuilding has been a big part of my life. Thanks for your time. Timothy Christ. All right. Congratulations, Tim, for getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. 50 years of bodybuilding. That's amazing. So good for you. Yeah, I will send you out my list of the bodybuilding magazines that I have. If anybody else out there is interested, just hit me up, naturalolympia at gmail.com. Send me an email, and I will send you the list of all the old bodybuilding magazines I have. I have a bunch of old muscle developments, or muscular development, I should say. I've got a lot of old Ironmans going all the way back to the Perry Raider ones. I've also got the newer ones from John Balick. I've even got some muscle builders. So, yes, send me an email if you guys are interested. I'll send you the list. If I don't start selling them pretty soon, I'm going to put them on eBay, but I would rather have you guys get them before them. All right, let me read some of these comments from our interview with Jerry Branham. Now, this was part one of our interview with Jerry, where we talked about the Arnold documentary on Netflix. Mark says, love him or hate him, you can't deny Arnold's charisma. Bram Green says, I love when Jerry is on. Dog's Dinner, fantastic interview. Jerry is such an important resource of memories and information. King Size 1182 says, John and Jerry are badasses. One of my three top bodybuilding podcasts to watch. John Hansen is no joke, brings it 100 every time. Carved Out of Stone says, great interview and review, John. I remember teaching 7th grade elementary school kids a decade ago, and they never even knew who Arnold was or is. I was shocked, to say the least. I'd love to hear from someone who's not really familiar with Arnold's story to give their take on the series. We take it for granted that we know the backstory so well, and our minds fill in the missing pieces. I wonder what the layperson thinks of this. Yeah, that's a good point. I would like to know that, too. It would be good to talk to someone maybe younger or someone who didn't know anything about Arnold and see what they thought of the documentary. Pinnacle Pete says, in regards to Arnold training five hours a day, I went to see Dave Draper and Boyer Co. at a gym in Bloomfield, New Jersey, with my lifting partner back in 1973. Boyer won the Mr. Universe the next night with Dave guest posing. My friend asked Draper how long he trains for. Dave answers an hour to an hour and a half. So my friend goes ballistic. But Arnold trains for three and a half hours. Dave looks at him, pauses, and then says, Kid, you've been reading those magazines too long. (laughs) Mazik says, Great podcast, John. Jerry tells a good story. Thoroughly enjoyed this. Ryan says, The drunk Arnold story had me in tears. Another great video as always. WJ Studio says, thank you for bringing new details about our idol, Arnold. Good or bad, he's still human, which makes him even more relatable. Sir Gromulus says, I love listening to Jerry. And, of course, John brings out the best of his guests with his preparation and interview style. I do have to comment on Jerry's dark background. 
His videos have looked the same for years. Reminds me of watching Goulardi late night in the 1960s. Someone needs to buy him a couple of lights. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll send Jerry a ring light for his uh, birthday next time. Dr. C says, Arnold has it all. Doesn't happen very often in life, which is why we love to watch him. He's almost cartoon-like and is slow through life, always succeeding. 31A Cruz says, the reason Arnold had a confident attitude when young, some called him arrogant, is because he learned early on that the judges picked the wrong winner many times. His his attitude and confident attitude was just another tool he used to make sure they picked him as the winner and not some other idiot for whatever reason. He understood it's an imperfect world with imperfect people, and he made sure mistakes and stupidity did not happen. Hmm, interesting comment. Being a competitor, I agree with you. You really do have to stand out because the judges are human and they're making a subjective judgment. So if you can do whatever you can to make them go your way, that's the right thing to do. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's a good comment. G. Hart says, Arnold Doc is great, and what Arnold has achieved is amazing. I would like to know if he told when he started taking Dianabol. Apparently, he started when he was a teenager. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. Mike says, how many times did you watch it? Be honest. You are a true historian and bodybuilding. Me, I watched it three times. Nico says, yes, before he dies and others that were affected dies, he should come clean on those bogus wins. I love the documentary just the same, and I love your reaction as well. Ken Woods says, Arnold has always been a mover and a shaker. Kirk James said, great review and conversation. Office Space said, growing up with Arnold, there are some things I greatly admire, like his drive, attitude, personality, and spirit, but it's tempered by other aspects like his win-at-all-cost and sometimes unethical or morally questionable behavior, including his fascist leanings. The doc was very pro-Arnold and scripted to show him in the best light, leaving out a lot of less favorable moments. I got the feeling, as now an older man, that the doc was designed to leave a certain view or legacy in the minds of the general non-bodybuilding public. RM says, a new John Hansen Arnold video, today is a good day. Hard Rock says, John, maybe you might be able to verify this. Weren't they considering Arnold to play Prince Namor as well? I don't remember that, but I do remember he was up for Flash Gordon, which came out, I believe, in the early 1980s, maybe 1980 or 79. And that was the famous meeting where he met Dino De Laurentiis for the first time. And Arnold walked in with his agent and he saw Dino, who's a small guy, sitting behind this huge desk like a godfather desk, and he said, what does such a small guy like yourself need with such a big desk? And then when Dino heard Arnold's accent, he says, you're not the Flash of Gordon. You can't be Flash of Gordon. You have an accent. And Arnold says, "You, I have an accent. You have an accent. I can't even understand you. And that was it. He kicked him out of the office, and the meeting was over. So then a couple of years later, he got hired to play Conan, and I think as they mentioned in the documentary, Dino De Laurentiis did not want Arnold to play Conan. He said he was a Nazi. And John Milius, the director of Conan, came to Arnold's defense and he said, if we didn't have Arnold, we would have to build Arnold. So we have to have him in the role. So that's the famous story I heard. Kenneth Brett says, Hercules in New York was a poor film, but Arnold carried it. Anybody who has seen the film recently, not 35 years ago, will see that. He's shown too much if anyone was watching. He carried the bodybuilding industry for a decade previously. It is no accident. Scronic says, I couldn't agree more with Jerry's comments regarding the Netflix documentary and FUBAR. 
Wigu says, great video again. Best regards from Germany. Pink, yellow, blue says, Arnold probably didn't train with Franco because of the height difference and resulting different settings on equipment. Oliver says, thanks for the video. 31A Cruz says, Jerry always has a dig about the 1980 O. It's simple and can be said in one sentence. A less good than usual Arnold is still better than the competition, period, simple. Overall, I like Jerry and I enjoy stories, but if he at least mentioned this as a possibility that many believe is true and it's entirely logical, I would respect him more. At least mention the possibility like you mentioned others is all we ask. Give it airtime like you do all other theories and opinions about the event. John Kelly says 100 years from now, people will still be talking about Babe Ruth, Jim Brown, Michael Jordan, and the greatest bodybuilder of all time who could have won a dozen or more Mr. Olympia titles if he had not chosen acting Arnold. This one says, wouldn't you expect the 28-year-old Arnold to be more mature than the 75-year-old Arnold? Isn't that logical? Isn't that the case with all of us? He should be more humble, more mature, more knowledgeable. Jerry says it like a revelation, and he acts surprised. Samuel says, come on, Dave was great. Kenneth says, pumping iron I thought was in 76 because the year I got married. I know they made it in 75, and it came out in January of 77. Bill Bob says he said he still trains five hours a day because he's a liar, probably trying to sell something all the time. Oliver says, holy moly, she's a dog's dinner. And I believe that's it. All right. So thank you guys for your comments on the video. So that is now on my YouTube channel. You can check it out. Or my name, John Hansen, and I'll probably put part two up sometime this week. So look for that as well. And then we will have Brian Moss's interview up as well, probably within the next week. Brian sent me a lot of great pictures that I could use with the video. So that'll go along great with the video. All right, guys, that's all I got for my intro. So here is our interview with Brian Moss, where we will talk about how he started Better Bodies Gym in New York City, one of the most famous gyms in the country at the time, and how he was totally in support of women's bodybuilding and helped get that going in the early 1980s. Here we go. All right, welcome back to the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I have a very special guest with us this week, Mr. Brian Moss from New York. And Brian was the owner of Better Bodies Gym in the 1980s. It was one of the biggest gyms in the country. And he started his own agency for bodybuilders and was very influential in the start of women's bodybuilding. So, Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I've known of you for since the 80s. You know, I've been reading about you since the 80s in the magazine. So it's good to meet you in person. Yeah, yeah. It's good to still be here in person. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> To still be standing in this sport, as you know, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, pretty happy about that. So let's start at the, at the beginning, Brian. What was your interest in bodybuilding? How did you get involved in that? Well, it, it turns out that like, I don't know, a million other teens, like, uh, I, there was a universal in a high school gym that I frequented during the summers. Ironically, my, high school in New York City had no weights. We didn't yeah. have sports teams. But out in New Jersey, in this sort of a suburban setup, mm-hmm. all high schools had universals. And that's where I first understood, like, okay, this is weightlifting. Yeah. And then there was actually the thing that got me really started in weight training, It's and it was an aha moment that to this day I remember. It was in the 70s, and you probably remember the TV series Kung Fu. Yeah. David Carradine. Mm-hmm. So I used to like that. And one day there was a fight scene with him 
and William Smith, the famous bad guy. Right. And bodybuilder. He was a bodybuilder. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember looking, and he wore a cutoff shirt, of course. Of course. And he was wielding a a whip that was made of chain. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was like mesmerized by his arms. I was like, as a kid, like, how how does that happen? Like, how do you get your arms like that? And that, that was the start of my quest to understand, Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, you know, what's a barbell curl? All those things. I mean, you know, nothing, you know, go in there and on a universal, you do the stations, you know, there weren't any barbells. And so that's kind of where it started. And then when I went to college, it sort of continued there. There was a universal in the basement of uh, Syracuse University, the student athletic center, the gym. Okay. And I started training there and uh, really got into it. And uh, with a buddy, we, I guess to motivate ourselves, we knew nothing about bodybuilding per se. I mean, we knew from the magazines, mm-hmm. you know, I bought, I bought magazines back then. I still have like my uh, centerfolds from Muscle Digest. You know, they used to have centerfolds and Dave Nons, Frank Zane. Um, I still have them. And so that was my inspiration. And we thought, uh, you know, let's enter a show. We knew nothing. Didn't know from our diet was eggs. Like we really knew nothing. (laughs) Didn't know how to like, I used a, like a shaver on my body. He used a hand shaver and the morning of the show, he had red bumps all over his body. <laughs> I mean, we knew nothing, but we had so much fun. Yeah. And it was held at a gymnasium in Syracuse. It was called Mr. Salt City. I have photographs of that, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just stood on the gym floor, kind of like the way you, when you look at the old shots of like Arnold and those guys. Yeah. They were, n- n- you know, they were not, not up high. Not right. up, no, no, no podium, no nothing. Right. And um, we just had a blast because it's sort of, um, you know, some people are goal oriented. I think I'm one of those. Mm-hmm. So when you know you have something out ahead of you, you're like, you know, and we trained and I was a blast, but that was the first and last time. First and last time you competed. Yeah, I assessed my genetics pretty quickly. But, you know, the love for training never stopped. And when I graduated and then ultimately moved back to Manhattan after a stint in the National Park Service as a park ranger, Mm -hmm. I joined a very small, little hardcore men's gym called Westside Bodybuilding. And that that's where the idea was hatched for better bodies. Mm. Because this was an all-men's gym, hardcore um, but no women. And I didn't understand that. Like, well, why, why can't women train there? I mean, I get it. You want to be hardcore. It wasn't a health club. I right. mean, this was plate loaded equipment, floor fans. I mean, really yeah. great old school, you know, carpet that had holes in it from you dropping the plates on yeah. it. Yeah. All the stuff that we grew up with. And that's actually where I met, uh, God, my training partner who I'm still friends with today. Um, just a really important crew of people in my life. And uh, the plan was hatched in their little office, drinking those little canned protein. I forgot the name <laughs> of it now. They're little cans. They came in vanilla and chocolate. Okay. Can brand. And we pop them open with a can and drink our protein. And <laughs> that's where the idea came. And just uh, not with a whole lot of money. What year was that, Brian, that you were in that gym? 81. Oh, 81. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I opened up Better Bodies the fall of 82. Okay. So all that sort of like, um, that thought process to open was before that. So the summer, I had signed the lease and in the summer of 82 is when we started 
pulling the gym together, painting and so on. And I'll never forget. It was August and literally $10,000 to outfit the whole gym with equipment. Literally, that was it. Yeah. It wasn't a huge space, 4,000 square feet, but okay. still $10,000 probably buys you one fucking fancy pants, whatever, right, right. whatever they're building today. I don't know. Yeah. And so what we did, we rented a box truck and we went down to, uh, Fregnos, Maddie Fregnos. Yeah. Cause he had a gym in, in Brooklyn. Uh, but he also made and sold equipment. And, uh, so we took this truck down there and we loaded it up with equipment, my dumbbells, all of my equipment. And, and, and I got my, uh, puzzle tile, the old fashioned two foot yeah. by two foot puzzle tiles, which I still have actually. It's crazy. 40 years later, they're sitting <laughs> in a field in upstate New York, but I still have really? them. Yeah. Well, they're kind of magical because a lot of really legends walk those floors, you know, yeah. so they have good spirit, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we set up, uh, the gym and then a friend of mine, Mike, uh, who helped run the gym and open the gym knew a woman that was a trainer at a midtown health spa. And of course, uh, my flyer, which, you know, you can maybe cut to because it's pretty cool. The headline for the flyer was Manhattan's first serious bodybuilding gym for women, big, big, Mm. big, and then small as well as men. (laughs) I wanted to create a place where women could train Hardcore. Yeah. Not be told, oh, go over to the little chrome dumbbells or, you right. know, remember this was the culture of jazzercise, yeah. Jane Fonda, mm-hmm. you know, leg warmers. There was not a whole lot of, there was no hardcore training for women in, in New York. Right. And so he brought in this uh, young woman and introduced her. And we thought, man, if we're going to be a gym for women, we better have a woman that can train women. Can't just yeah. be men like me and my training partner training. And, uh, her name was Gladys Portuguese. Mm. So, you know, the rest is history. You yeah. Know, she was hired and we became close and friends and boyfriend, girlfriend. And I, you know, sort of managed her career as best I yeah. could. Yeah. I definitely and, want to talk about Gladys. Now, before yeah. Brian, when you were involved, when you first got your first contest and you were in the New York area and you were kind of watching the bodybuilding scene, were you more of a, a fan? Were you just like watching like what was going on in bodybuilding? Um, well, I was a fan only in so much as the magazines. Yeah. Um, I didn't go to any shows I probably, oh, okay. other than my show and then fast forward to Gladys competing, uh, which her first show would have been, well, I think she actually competed in one show in 81 before I met her and okay. then in 82. Um, my first show was probably the 97 night of champs, I'm guessing, or may- maybe it was earlier than that. I would have gone to the Night of Champs early. Okay. But I took a camera to 97. That's why it sticks in my head. And yeah. that was, had the unintended consequences of launching my photography career. Yeah. But yes. from early on, from when I opened the gym in 82, I sold tickets for the Night of Champs as that's how tickets were sold back then. Yeah. Like for the, the gym, motor right. would go to the gyms. The gym mm-hmm. owner would put up a sign. And then, you know, once you, whatever, you sold your tickets and, you know, the promoter would then basically, you know, give you a couple of tickets. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I'm still friends, friends with Wayne D'Amelio. Of course, that was yeah. Wayne's show. Right. And uh, so I always sold for him. So I guess I started going in, in the early eighties to pro show, not in Olympia until Gladys got involved. Of course, because okay. she was in two Olympias. 
But the night of champions, I went to to the end. Yeah, yeah that was well, that was a New York show, man. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts about women in bodybuilding? I mean, you you opened this gym specifically for that. Um, so the women were just starting to get into it probably a couple of years before that, right? Around 1980, maybe 79. Yeah. I, even a couple of years before that on a really small scale, women started okay. training in gyms in particular, yeah. even out West, uh, but not to any great degree. I mean, they were just not welcome in really those hardcore environments. Yeah. I and mean, the men didn't want it. And I think it's got to be intimidating. Um, and that was the impetus behind what that slogan was it's like for women as well yeah. as men yeah it was never it was never a woman's gym it was always a co-ed gym yeah but the whole idea and i learned quickly is that in terms of women in a gym that back then they weren't seeking to be treated differently at all they just wanted to be treated equally mm-hmm. and that's all it was yeah so it's like can i work in with you sure strip the plates put them on strip the plates put them on no mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. because that could have been a 17-year-old boy, kid, right? Right. You right. do that. So what's the difference? Yeah. And we just made it super welcoming to everybody. Again, man or woman, beginners, and, uh, you know, just created an amazing environment, an amazing culture. Mm. You know, it was a touchstone for many people's lives if you spoke yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, and to this oh. day, I'm friends with those people. We have a Facebook group and we oh, interact. Yeah. Well, it's crazy wow. to think from 40 years ago. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. And one woman, she, in one of the threads to a photo or something, she put it really beautifully. She said, and re- remember now we're in our 60s. Most of us are all in our 60s. Yeah. And uh, she wrote, I might not have the body I had back then, but I have the friends. Mm. And I thought that was really great. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, that's what I, you know, I try not to be the grumpy old guy looking at the shit that goes on in gyms sure. and what people are doing, but I am, but, but I try not to be. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> Cause it's, it's not my world anymore. You right. Know, I know. It's cool. Like it's their world. We always complain about it on this podcast. Yeah. But the thing that I've said, and sometimes when I've spoken publicly about it, it's like, don't, you know, don't make a tripod, your training partner. Yeah. Like, because you're missing maybe the most important aspect of training in a hardcore gym is the, the relationships and the friendships and the camaraderie, men and women and everybody. It just, yeah, it's what I hold on to dearly. I don't think about the day I single 315. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Nobody cares about that day. It was a big deal to me. Yeah. But it doesn't matter today. But right. what matters today is these people that I connected with so long ago. And that's all I say to p- young people today is like, you know, maybe one doesn't preclude the other. Maybe you can have a tripod yeah. and still have a great relationship with your gym, the people in the gym and your gym owner. Yeah. I mean, if it's an owner operated gym, which unfortunately there's less and less of those. Right. Where was the gym located at in New York? Uh, I mean, now they call it the Flatiron District. It didn't have a name back then. Okay. Uh, the original location was on 21st Street between 5th and uh, 6th Avenues. Okay. And that was 82 to 87. And then I grew, I outgrew it rather quickly. And in 87, I moved to the current location because the gym is still there on 19th Street between 5th and 6th. Okay. And that was about, ooh, I'm going to guess, twelve or 13,000 square feet. And, you know, I'm proud to say it's still a gym, which yeah. is amazing that that space People have been working out since 1987. Pretty cool. Yeah. 
So you owned it from uh, 82 to, to 97. That was your, when you owned it. Yes, I sold, I sold the 97, right? Okay. That's right. I didn't sell the name. I sold the gym. Okay. It's a difference. Gotcha. gotcha. I didn't sell the name Better Bodies until 2006. Oh, okay. Okay. So when you first met Gladys, what did you think of her? Cause, uh, I thought, I thought she started under you. I didn't think she, I didn't know she was already a woman trainer. That's interesting. Yeah. It was a health spa. So take okay. that for what it's worth, but yeah. you know, she, she knew something for sure. Yeah. But you know, she was just magnetic. I mean, you couldn't meet Gladys and not just feel like, Oh man, she's really fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. just warm and, uh, just engaging and, I mean, nobody could have imagined she was going to step on the Miss Olympia stage in the 80s. Right. I mean, my God, there's no way. Yeah. Like, I felt she could be successful because she had this incredible package of sort of aesthetics and looks and personality. And, you know, of course, the original flyer that I kind of cut out and designed uh, before I opened Better Bodies, I was working at the Museum of Natural History at the time. And in between taking kids on tours of the museum, I was sketching the logo. I was, mm-hmm. oh, I make a flyer and it's going to have a woman and it's going to say the slogan that I gave you, Manhattan's. Well, that woman that I cut out was Rachel. Mm, okay. So I knew, you know, Rachel was sort of my archetype. Yeah. And when I met Gladys, I thought, why not Gladys? Yeah. Right. Right. And again, who could have known she'd be stepping on stage and in pumping iron too with yeah. Rachel? Fucking McClish. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh my God, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. So when Gladys joined the gym, did she help bring in some people? I mean, it was her persona being there. Did it help, uh, help the gym out? Well, she wasn't known yet, you know, yeah. in, in yeah. two, uh, but she was on the flyer. And when people would come in and see her training, it's like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So in that regard, a lot of people were hooked like right. that. That's what I want. Meaning that's the body strength, aesthetics, proportions, things like that. Yeah. So in that regard, she did as she became more famous. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, people were attracted and would come in just the way that you might want to go to goals. Yeah. Know, yeah. Who's, who's there that day? Like we yeah. all did in the eighties. Yeah. It was a wild time in bodybuilding. I was around during that time too. And, when the women started working out, I remember the media was so fascinated with women training, you know, women having yes. muscles. And I mean, muscles back then is different than yes. today, but just yes. that they had a little bit of muscles. They just, the, the media just flocked to it. They really loved it. It was such an interesting concept to them. That's right. And, and, you know, that, that was good for me because I mean, yeah. Boy, yeah. and you know, you know, publicity begets publicity. Yeah. So. Yes, Gladys is in this. Then you get a call. It's Italian TV. It's Japanese TV. Wow. It's everybody sees it. And, and I, I got a videos of all that stuff. Yeah. We just got tremendous publicity as did everybody else. I mean, Phil Donahue, Regis yeah. Philbin, we did all the talk shows did it. A lot of those sort of like evening magazine shows covered it. You're right. It was like nothing we had ever seen before. Yeah. It's hard to believe that today. It is. It back then. Yeah. I mean, back then, sort of pre-internet, you know, there was a sense of wonder still that one could have about many things, mm-hmm. many, endless. And women with muscle was that one of those things. Yeah. It was like wonder, like, wow, like how, what? Yeah. And yeah. We just got a ton of publicity back then. My God. Yeah. So 
was Gladys just starting to compete then when she joined your gym when you met her? Yes. You know, like I said, I think she did one show before I met her. Okay. And then we did a string of shows, 82, 83, uh, all local shows by, uh, actually an, a great ex bodybuilder, George Payne. I mean, oh, yeah. competed, I remember him. Yeah. You know, in, in the seventies, he was a, you know, a, a bodybuilder to deal with. He yeah. was sort of like the promoter, the main promoter in the New York City area. And so we did a bunch of his shows. Uh, and then in 83, uh, Gladys was invited to the Night of Champions for Women, which was a one-off kind of this pro-am contest that was held okay. in conjunction with the men's show. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the largest audience that she'd ever been in front of because that was mm-hmm. Night of Champions. Yeah. And it was, it was actually the George Payne shows and then that show where Wayne D'Amelia, Wayne D'Amelia first saw Gladys at a George Payne show. And it's because Wayne D'Amelia was involved with Pumping Iron 2, assisting George Butler. Yeah. When they were looking for women, Wayne was like, you need to see this woman in New York. Yeah. Actually two, Gladys and Lydia Chang. Okay. And that's how both of those women were invited to mm. be part of Pumping Iron 2. Okay. See, the, see what I think what they call the Caesar Cup. How did she do in that uh, Night of the Champions show? You know, I, I don't remember. <laughs> and I, tried, I tried Googling it. I have to ask Wayne because he has yeah. a memory of an elephant. Um, she didn't win, but she probably finished high, you know, maybe top six or something like yeah. that, I guess. Yeah. Because uh, I tried Googling it. I can't find any record of it, which is mm. weird. I see no photographs. Of course, the men come up, but I see nothing. So I have to, I have to ask Wayne about that. Cause yeah, I know I've got that Flex magazine where, because uh, it was Haney's first win, I think, when he won that. I think he won the Night of the Champions that year. Oh, okay. So, so maybe, I know I've yeah. got that article, but I don't remember the women part. I'll have to look again and see if I yeah, can. Yeah, maybe, maybe it got some mention or something, or maybe yeah. not. Maybe yeah. it didn't. Yeah, maybe it didn't. Yeah. yeah he was always good at finding people who he thought could be, you know, even like when he was doing his shows, he would see people in Europe and invite them over. You know, yeah. to hit contests, he was always good at finding that kind of talent, you know, or somebody that yeah. would connect with the audience like that. Yeah, that's right. And that's, you know, I will always be thankful to him for that because, you know, and, and George, I mean, we got to meet George Butler and work with yeah. him as well. Yeah. So that, that was really, that was a cool experience. So when they did Pumping Iron 2, um, did they come to New York and film Gladys there or was it all just done in Vegas? Me, I don't remember. She, I think she did several trips. To, no, there was nothing in New York. Of course, the show was filmed in Vegas. Yeah. There was training that was done, and I do not remember if they brought her maybe to L.A. for a separate trip just to get some training stuff, because I know there's footage of her and Lydia and Rachel training. Yeah, I remember that, too. I'd be surprised if that happened pre-contest. I don't know, but normally you're not training that hard before a show. Yeah, um, so, yeah. So, my guess is, and that's probably a good question. I should ask Wayne. They probably flew her out there just for, you know, some B-roll, basically. Mm, okay. After the show, they just want to get some training footage. I would think probably before. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. whatever, a few weeks before, something like that training. Yeah. But I, I remember there's training footage of them. And yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. I don't think that would have happened like at the Caesars Palace gym. I mean, maybe it did. I don't yeah. know. That's yeah. That's a good question. What did Gladys feel about that whole experience about being involved in that film? I mean, I can't, I don't remember specifically her thoughts, but I think we were both like pinching ourselves. Like, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, God, in Las Vegas, it was just, you know, of course, 
there was a big show going on, plus their show. That's yeah. actually where both her and I met Mike Christian. Oh, uh, Mike okay. Christian, yeah. be, to this day, he's like a brother to me. Really? I mean, wow. yeah. Well, he, he just, you know, we were nobodies. We were little nobodies from New York. Yeah. And Mike took us under his wing. And uh, the first time we went to L.A., we visited him. He was managing the Kensington Hotel or Motel right there on the beach. Uh, we visited him there. And I think we stayed at the Holiday Inn, which is where Joe Weider used to put everybody on Pico. Okay. And just Mike always watched out for us. You know, we would go to Gold's with Mike. I mean, Mike was like the mayor of Venice back then. <laughs> right. Just, you know, most amazing personality, the best yeah. laugh in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, who doesn't love Mike Christian? So yeah, exactly. we were just thrilled. And, you know, if he introduces you, you're, you're cool. Yeah. <laughs> you're okay. So right. we did the rounds. We did golds. We did worlds. You know, it, it was a blast. Yeah. Just an amazing time to be out there. Lee Annie told me the same thing. He said when he first moved to L.A., Mike was showing him around, showing him around. Oh, yeah. He babysitted, yeah, yeah. you know, he, he babysit his uh, kid. Did he have a kid back then? Maybe not, but a little uh, later. Yeah, 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 a little later. Yeah. Olympia, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, it's just he's he's the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. He had a convertible Mercedes. I never forget it. Oh, I never. Really? Seen, well, it was a coupe, like a four door or maybe. Uh, yeah, but but you know, in L.A., they were chopping and cutting and making anything a, a convertible, <laughs> and you just didn't see that. And it was like Mike rolling up with that and music playing, <laughs> and oh yeah. my god, we would go to Carlos and Charlie's and Chippendales. We went everywhere. It was just so much fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. Train in the day, of course, the firehouse that hasn't changed in decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just really a magical time. So how was the gym doing by this point? Because after a couple of years of owning it, it had to be, I mean, that's when women's bodybuilding was really taken off. So it had to be getting bigger and bigger, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, everything was good, right? I mean, I would say everything was good until the rest of the world caught up to what we already knew. Yeah, right. So it, it's it's weird. So in a way, like all the sort of um pontificating about, the importance and the value, it worked. And everybody then wanted to train. So in a weird way, it was probably bad for my business, but good for the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, I, you know, people walk into gyms, they see a busy gym, and they're immediately counting your money. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't see the $3,000 electric bill. They yeah. don't see, you know, the insurance. You know, you can't just look at the people. And multiply it out times the annual. Like, right. There's right. this cost most people don't understand. And so there, there never used to be competition back in those days. It's like we all sort of had our own neighborhood, at least in Manhattan and maybe even in the boroughs. You know, people are not getting in cars. So you had a neighborhood gym. Some people would travel to gyms, mm-hmm. but you really needed to be able to walk to your gym for it to be successful. And yeah. from the member's side too. If you can't walk, I would tell people, you're probably not going to want to go to the gym. If yeah. It means getting into a subway or taking a bus. And so we had our own little areas staked out, like my area. Bobby Fuchs and Nicole had their area. Yeah. Mid City had their, you know, and, and it was perfect. It was just mm. enough for everybody. But then when big money started getting involved, and I remember um, the very first Equinox, which was actually privately owned. It's since been sold. Mm-hmm. But it was privately owned by a family, but they had a ton of money. 
and they were opening up a few blocks from me. And mm. when they told me the build out was like, or I heard was like millions. I thought millions, like <laughs> millions. I opened up better bodies with $50,000. Yeah. <laughs> like millions. But it, it, I also said to myself, we're, we're in two different businesses because I got a hardcore gym. Yeah. I probably have like four old Tontori stationary bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's your cardio. Right. And <laughs> if you go to Equinox, you've got life step and life fitness and the Versa climbers and yeah. those things were thousands of dollars back then. Yeah. And yeah. So to me, it was a different business, but nevertheless, I could tell something was changing. Mm-hmm. Like nobody would even come to that neighborhood in 82. Literally, there was nothing there. Mm. And you know, New York uh, and you have gentrification everywhere. Yeah. And so people started coming in, loft spaces, residential space started being built. And it just felt like there was a moment where it was like trying to get blood from a stone mm. because I always held my membership rates really as low as could be. And if you're only offering only, only offering strength training and cardio, I don't, I don't see how you can keep going up sort of astronomically yeah. Yeah. every year. You just can't keep going up because you reach a point where it's like, okay. Yeah. To me, kind of the writing was on the wall. And then the real moment for me when I knew things changed and I'll never forget it. And you know, this, you've probably been in all sorts of independently owned gyms. The owner, when, when you're in that owner's gym, it's like you're in that owner's living room. That's mm-hmm. how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. Like you're in my living room and people respected that. Like back in those days, if you needed something done, painted, moved, you just, 10 people like, yeah. cause that's, yeah. that's what it was like back then. Right. Right. And there was a moment, I guess it was probably mid nineties because of when I sold 97, uh, one of my members sued me, which number one, like makes me crazy. Like how does a member sue you? Because mm-hmm. I took care of everything. But the reason blew my mind. I was always very careful about my equipment, replacing cables, things like that. Worried like, yes, you deserve to be sued. If somebody's doing a lot, pull down and the cable snaps. That's right. a problem. Right. But this guy sued me. Um, you know, the old fashioned triangular weight trees, right? Yeah. Weight trees. So I have weight trees and he's taking off a 25 pound plate himself off of a weight tree and dropped it on his toe and he sued me. <laughs> and uh, I, and of course, the insurance company settled because uh, they don't want to get into litigation, whatever. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, how did they do that? There was that moment. And then the moment I found a piece of gum stuck under underneath one of my bench presses. Mm. Like, that's like doing it to my kitchen table. Yeah. I felt about it. Yeah. And I thought, man, like, these are not the people, like, that that's I was in love with in the 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're just different. Different, wow. different mentality. And I thought, I'm out of here. And luckily, luckily enough, I was able to sell. Like, you know, a lot of gyms close at midnight. Yeah. You know, they don't, they can't do anything. But the thing that I had going for me is I had an amazing lease. And so the value was in the lease mm. because even when things were going well and I saw the area growing up, I actually renegotiated my lease to get more time. Oh, and okay. back back in those days in New York and those big spaces, it was not unheard of to have 10 and 15 year leases hmm. because 
that just was the standard. That's what people did. If they built a big business, they weren't moving in two years. Right, right. So I had a long lease. I was into it. Then I renegotiated. So I don't remember exactly what I had on it, maybe 12 years or something. So that's what had tremendous value. And the fact that I owned all my equipment. There wasn't yeah. leasing back then. So yeah. you know, yeah. today you walk into a gym. They, I don't know. A lot of gyms probably don't own any of their equipment. Right. They, right. I think. I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn because I don't really know current gym owners, but when you see the amount of equipment and the cost, I'm thinking yeah, the maybe cost. They didn't know they could own it, right? Yeah. They still lease it maybe, but yeah. you know, maybe they do. I don't know. Right. But I owned everything. And so that made it really, really sort of desirable for anybody. It was turnkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to sell it. It was pretty cool. And it's still a gym today, as I say, different owners. Wow. Okay. I have to sue the people that I sold, sold it to. Uh, but a new guy came in and put some old pictures up of me and better bodies and oh, people cool. Cool. To bring back the mojo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the legend lives on. <laughs> yeah. 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 He kind of, cause it had yeah. like you know, bad vibes from the other guy that basically left at midnight. Mm-hmm. I remember I got emails the morning of and I'm like, I sold the gym years ago. Why are you emailing me? Like, I can't open the gate for you. Right. <laughs> but you also uh, started a clothing line, right? I remember you were one of the first ones to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it just started really humble, like any gym owner, right? You open uh-huh. up a gym and you go to a silk screener with your logo, and they have yeah. a blank, you know, t-shirt, a tank top, some like short shorts. Yeah, and right. Pants. I have photos of it. I think I had like six things up on the wall. Uh-huh. And that was, that was it. But what I didn't have in, I guess, product, um, I had in promotion. So when anybody walked into my gym, I made it open to the magazines, as you know, that's why you saw yeah. me in the magazines. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Kennedy, Mike Nephew, John Balick, always open arms mm-hmm. because they need places to shoot. And yeah. you don't understand the culture. You'd be like, get the fuck out of here. You're going to get in my way. It right. was an honor for us. Like, are you right. kidding? Like, yeah. to be Haney in my gym? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, my members were wonderful. We were all in awe of seeing those people up close. Yeah. And so they knew. So that was every night of champs. And, of course, some of the Olympias were in New York. And that Sunday, everybody was there. And... Mm. Oh. And even we did multiple magazines shooting at the same time. It was all like a big family, like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, we just all worked it out together. So I created, uh, you know, I guess today they call it brand identity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, the logo was everywhere. Yeah. And so it, it attracted attention and then ultimately entered into a licensing deal from actually a European distributor. Oh, um, okay. and it really became sort of like global because they were producing in Europe. Yeah. I was producing still here, but I was able to sell some of the stuff that they produced. Uh, that's what got me to FIBO. They did. Oh, uh, wow. they okay. FIBO. Yeah. Um, and then ironically or ultimately the, Sub licensee, the person, the way that they ran it was they sub licensed to the individual countries because this is before the European Union. So it was complicated. You couldn't just move around. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to sell in Germany, you needed a distributor in Germany. You needed to produce it in Germany. And so the distributor for Scandinavia of better bodies from back in the eighties, uh, they ultimately are the ones that I sold the remaining trademark, which was 
Okay. The States. I think I still probably had Mexico and maybe Japan uh, okay. that were not sold. And cause they, they had owned it elsewhere. And so I'm, you know, they're wonderful. They've done an amazing job. Uh, we had a 40th year anniversary last August. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. It was, it was, it gave me chills, you know, to, to yeah. be, be like, young kids in their twenties wearing a team better body shirt. It's like, Oh, <laughs> that's great. Man. Yeah. It, it, it was crazy. Like I just, I couldn't believe it. How could anybody imagine? Yeah. Their logo was going to be worn by a young person, you know, not an old guy like us, maybe like, Hey, oh, wow. Cool shirt. Yeah. They're wearing team better bodies and the women are wearing it. And I'm like, man, this is amazing. Wow. So, you know, it worked out. They really protected the brand. They've grown the brand. And most importantly, they, what they understand is that it was never a clothing line first. If you do a clothing line first, then you stand for nothing. Right, right. I was at a gym and I stood for something. We all yeah. stood for something. So when you wore the shirt, you were standing for that as well. Yeah. And that is exactly what they're doing at Destination Dallas. Uh, the people that Destination Dallas are the owners of Better Bodies okay. and Gas. And Destination Dallas has that same feel like it feels family when you walk in there yeah. everybody's in it together and they've done a fantastic job michael johansson just really like taking it into the future with everything that i was sort of thinking about and dreaming about from the 80s mm. he, has, he hasn't missed a beat wow. in terms of belief yeah. in terms of belief yeah, you, know, you, you did a great job marketing because i remember seeing all these bodybuilders wearing like gary stridham and you know, they're yeah. all wearing your better body shirts. And for somebody that wasn't aware of your gym, everybody would be like, who's that? What's that about? You know, and, and you were in the magazines a lot. I remember you were in Muscle Mag a lot and, and Flex. Yeah. Flex. Yeah. And as you know, it's it's no social media. Right. So the only way, the only way you're out there is the magazines. Magazines, right. And unfortunately, that ship has sailed. I, I know. I would, I would How do you feel about that, Brian, not having the magazines anymore? Uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It is. Just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, look, social media, you know, blessing and a curse for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think if I had my druthers, I'd probably want to go analog, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. The, the problem, at least that I see when I look at it and just in terms of the sport, it's sort of, and again, blessing and a curse. It, it's decentralized bodybuilding. You know, it's like you don't need magazines anymore. Uh, you know, you can have a million followers because yeah. you're amazing or yeah. <laughs> you know, look at, you know, Chris Bumstead, like amazing. Yeah. Now, of course, he would have been on every magazine in the newsstands. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he was going to find his way to the top no matter what. Right. But now it's kind of like, again, blessing and a curse. Everybody has a voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it yeah. at that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you and, had to be somebody to be in the magazines back then, you know. That's right. You yeah. you did, or at least the 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 promoters or the publishers needed to feel that way. Yeah. But it was in their best interest to find people that would be attracted to the masses. Right. Right. I, I guess in a way you could consider them gatekeepers, but I was okay with that. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, we, we lived for the magazines. Oh yeah. And that's how we got our information. Right. And whether you had a subscription and couldn't wait to get to the mailbox to get it yeah. or to the local newsstand to get it. Yeah. And it would sound crazy to a 24 year old today. Yeah. But, and we would just pour over it 
we would get contest results that way, which is incredible if you think about <laughs> months later. <laughs> the delay right. like, from show to print is yeah. eight weeks. I mean, yeah. and that makes me think of like in the in the early eighties. wasn't that much better, but what I did in the early eighties, it was still, of course, analog. And because I was traveling to the big shows, the Olympia, and, uh, that was and and, and the and the Arnold or the. Yeah, I went to the Arnolds from the beginning. So those are the big shows. People always want to know who's winning. I didn't do amateur shows back then. Yeah. Uh, but I was there. So what I would do is I would, that night, I would call the manager of Better Bodies, give them one through 10. They would write it down. Then they'd <laughs> place it at the front desk at Better Bodies. Right, right. <laughs> so that people would be like really quickly in the know. Yeah, yeah, right. And then it got to a point where out-of-towners would call Better Bodies <laughs> and ask, who won the Olympia? <laughs> like Gold's Gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure Gold's, yeah, was yeah. used to that. Yeah. But that's that's how, you know, information was disseminated back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. I did an so, interview with um, Rick Wayne last year. Oh, yeah, great. I talked to him for like three hours, but... Uh, I bet. He was asking me, because I've got a bunch of old magazines. You know, I've got stacks and stacks of them. I'm not going to get rid of them. So he... I guess Rick had lost a lot of those magazines. He doesn't have them. So he was asking me for the 81 Olympia report. Well, I went back and looked. It was four parts, four issues, part one, part two, part three, part four. So I took pictures with my phone and I sent it to him. It ended up being like 47 pages of incredible. Of Unbelievable. Yeah, that's and incredible. We don't have anything like that anymore. You know, the in no. backstage stories, you know, what, what really happened? The aftermath—it was just such incredible reporting. It was amazing, and plus, you know, a talented writer like Rick or Jack Neary or somebody like that is just yeah. beautiful to read. You know, yeah, that's right. And Jerry Candela was writing back yeah. then. Uh, he he did a he did a something similar to that on Pumping Iron. If you see, I think I think it was for Flex. It was like you know eight pages and like spreads and spreads yeah. and was, yeah. yeah. He uh, he wasn't the. I don't think he was the editor yet. I think he was already started as a writer there. And okay. Of course he became the editor of Flex. But yeah, those were just. Um, I don't know. I love those yeah. days. Just something special about seeing it laid out like that. Like you said, all the pictures and you know, it's just something special, magical. You know? Yeah. It, look, we we cut out those pictures, like I told yeah. you, Muscle Digest. Pulled out those centerfolds of Serge Nubray. Put them on my wall. Yeah. You know, digital. Digital is digital, and it always feels disposable to me. Yeah, and, and as a photographer, not only as a fan, but as a photographer, yeah, I'm acutely aware of that sense of like um, impermanence and disposability because it is just digital, and there's something very beautiful about like a print. And you know, I was reminded of that. You know, I've of course seen through the years my my photography printed. And appreciate it and I appreciate photographs. Yeah. And so yeah, just sort of discovering or rediscovering the power of a print. Yeah. I realized that a lot of the amazing bodybuilders that I photographed, they don't have prints. No, they don't. Wow. And yeah. they haven't seen a ton of stuff. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm going to change that. So not to digress, but when I did a, a, a meeting with Frank to talk about this documentary, uh, cause I'm going to interview him, of course, cause mm-hmm. it's basically him and me. Um, I just, we did a zoom and I kind of showed him some pictures and he's like, whoa, wow, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. And there was one, it was actually a scan of a contact sheet 
And for people that don't know what contact sheets are, yeah. you know, when there are negatives, we, your lab would just lay them down on a piece of photographic paper. So you just have like these thumbnails would be a word that some right. would understand. And then with a loop, you would look and you would make your edits. And on my original contact sheet with a grease pencil, I marked it and I put, wow, like I loved it back then. Yeah. I forgot all about it. I haven't looked at those things in, since whatever, 2005. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and Frank was like, wow, like that's <laughs> really cool. And I said, no worries, man. I'm going to, I'm going to send you a high res scan because he wanted to print it out. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay. So, you know, Evan Santapani, of course, is a great friend of mine, been photographing him since the beginning. Yeah. Animal pack. I just picked, this is just very recently, a few months ago. Um, I picked my favorite photograph. Hard to say my favorite. I like a lot of them. And I had it printed out like 20 by 22. It's really large. Wow. Cool. And, uh, I was supposed to meet him at the New York Pro and I was going to surprise him with it there, but he yeah. ended up going. So just okay. about, I don't know, two weeks ago, I finally figured out a way to flat pack it and nail it. Wow. Okay. I was just struck by it because, yeah, it's, uh, like, oh my God, it's a, it's a print. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, you just don't see that today. That's, oh, mm-hmm. you know, well, just in terms of social media and scroll, yeah. scroll, scroll. And you know, people think that things maybe should exist the size of their tablet or their phone. Yeah. Yeah. They really miss the beauty of a print of yeah. a body. Or, like yeah. that's amazing to see, especially. Even if it's a vintage print, I mean, what George Butler or things like that. Yeah. I had just a funny George Butler story. So obviously I got to know George through the years after pumping iron. Mm -hmm. At some point somewhere, I said to George, I said, you know, do you know my favorite photograph of yours is? And I think he's ready. So, oh, the one of Arnold, like Arnold, of course, he's taking the most mind blowing photographs, whether it's on the stage or the beach. Yeah. I said, no, it's, it's not that. It's, it's this. Oh yeah. What a goal. You probably yeah. remember that. Yeah. Uh huh. So I, I said that shot in Gold's gym because I love gyms. I, I'm like yeah. an old school gym rat. An empty gym is so like religious to me when I look at yeah. it. Yeah. And that morning sun is coming in, you know, like yeah. there's a dog sitting in the, oh, I <laughs> always loved it. And yeah. then at some point later, he gifted me, this is a signed print. Oh, is it really? George. Yeah. Great. So when you talk about that, like, this is from George Butler to me, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So that's that's what made that book so amazing was not only Charles Gaines writing, but George's photos were just unbelievable. Spectacular. Yeah. I I did an interview with Charles and I told him, I said, the photos were, I mean, I've read the bodybuilding magazines for years, but I never saw photos like that taken from that perspective, you know? That's right. And what's amazing, what people don't realize is, like, I always feel like when people ask me, like, how do you describe my work as a photographer or why, you know, why am I a good photographer? If you think that I always in my own head, I feel it's because I came I'm from within. Mm-hmm. Right? I, was, I was born into this kind of. So if I'm shooting somebody doing something in a gym, I probably trained somebody doing that in the gym in the 80s. And yeah. I understand yeah. the culture because I've literally been involved in it from every which way. Yeah. And so then my POV is different than hiring somebody from, you know, a gig website to come yeah. do a shoot. Like, oh, yeah, I'll shoot somebody in the gym. So what's spectacular about George, he was an outsider. Like, he was an outsider. Right. 
Right. I was I was on the inside shooting. Exactly. He came from the outside, yet he just had the most amazing instincts that you could ever see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just unbelievable for me. I think that's what made his photo so unique in that book was that he was an outsider and he took everything from a different angle. You know, remember that one where um, Arnold is outside? I think he's at the beach or something, and he's got his hands on the wall. That was just. And it was like a shot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's like a twisting sort of back yeah. shot. Yeah, it, it wasn't was in the original. Rubbery. I think it might have been in one of his yes. latest books. Or, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it just had a beautiful sensibility of not only composition, but finding, you know, moments. Yeah, exactly. Just, just reportage style. Yeah. You know, when you're shooting, like, you know, in the gym, you can sort of set things up. But backstage, because, of course, I was inspired by that for all my backstage work. Yeah. And you don't set shit up backstage because those guys will take your head off. Yeah. So you yeah. just kind of skulk around and you take your right. picture. Right. And that's what George did. And look, that's what the great ones did. Artie Zeller was like that. Yeah, he did. Just yeah. a little like a camera, natural light, gold yeah. thing. I didn't even know he was there. Just sneaking around taking pictures. And those photographs, to me, never better. And even John John Balick was doing that as well. Like yeah. you know, my yeah. Gene Mosey. And there's yeah. just a list of guys that are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So important. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. Thank you to Brian Walks for joining us for that great interview. We will have part two of Brian's interview next week on the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I also want to thank our Patreon donors for helping to support the Bodybuilding Legends podcast with your monthly donations. If you guys are interested in becoming a Patreon donor and helping to support the podcast, Just go to bodybuildinglegendsshow.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the link to become a Patreon donor. I also have the link below in the description of this podcast. And if you become a Patreon donor, you will be getting a weekly newsletter that I send out to all our Patreon donors. Depending on your level of Patreon sponsorship, you also will get an audio article and also a video article. And also some extra footage of some of the interviews that we do that is not shown on the video or the audio of the podcast. So get a little extra if you're a Patreon donor. So thank you guys again for helping to support the podcast. All right. Before I let you guys go, I want to read this article, which comes from the May 1985 issue of Flex Magazine. I believe this is when Rick Wayne was running the magazine. And women's bodybuilding was very, very popular and one of the most popular bodybuilders was Gladys Portuguese, who was a very beautiful female bodybuilder. Of course, Brian just talked about her. And she was very well-known. She was in a lot of the magazines because she was so photogenic and so beautiful. And Gladys really got serious in 1985, and she trained really hard, and she made great improvements to her physique and placed really good at the Miss Olympia. So that's what this article is about. It says, until recently, Gladys Portuguese's career always reminded me of a scene from the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin has brought his guardhouse commandos to a post commanded by a spit-and-polished Robert Ryan, who believes an important general is with the unit. He has turned out an impeccable honor guard for the general to inspect. So as not to disappoint Colonel Ryan, Donald Sutherland, the sloppiest private in Marvin's outfit, has been persuaded to impersonate the general. He gravely inspects the troops under Ryan's watchful eye, turns to him and says, They're pretty, Colonel, but can they fight? I first saw Gladys at the amateur women's event that Wayne D'Amelia held in conjunction with the Night of the Champions several years ago. 
She was alive and vivacious on stage and very attractive. She looked like Jennifer Beals of Flashdance, and she did win that night. But muscle? Well, let's just say it looked as if she'd done some training. She had definition, but not much size. She was pretty, but she couldn't have given much of a fight if she'd been up against the top pros. When I next saw her, she was guest posing at the 1983 Miss Olympia. She did a number with a couple of break dancers that was very entertaining, but in terms of physique, she hadn't made much improvement. And at the Caesars Cup in Las Vegas as part of the Pumping Iron 2 movie, she not only entered the contest but turned pro as well. But still, there wasn't much improvement in her physique. So when Gladys's friend and fellow New Yorker Lydia Chang said to me a few weeks before the 1984 Miss Olympia contest, just wait till you see Gladys. You won't believe the difference. I was somewhat skeptical. When a young bodybuilder looks the same year after year, you just don't expect to be surprised at the 11th hour. Then it was the night of the show, and Gladys came out on stage. Lydia was right. She had changed. She put on a lot of muscle. True, she wasn't in danger of putting the fear of God into bed Francis, but the improvement she made was dramatic. Her arms were still slender but decidedly muscular. Her delts were outstanding. Her legs, perhaps her greatest weakness a year before, showed development and muscle separation. Gladys Portuguese didn't come close to winning the Miss Olympia contest, but she did place in the top 10, a long way from the last or next to last placing she would have earned if she hadn't done something about developing her physique. You have to give Gladys credit for really working, says Brian Moss, her manager and boyfriend, but what helped make this change possible was the help we got from Mohamed Makawe and Ken Wheeler in Toronto, who put her on a training program and made sure she stuck to it. The Gladys-Toronto connection came about when Ken Wheeler brought her to Canada to do a TV commercial for his super fitness centers. He and Mohammed were immediately impressed with her charm and charisma. There was even some talk of her having posed in a mixed pairs event with Mohammed. But as Ken said later, too many bodybuilders have done badly in mixed pairs because they chose partners who were not as good as they themselves were. The way Gladys looked then, she would have hurt both their chances in competition. But during that visit, Ken and Mohammed became convinced that Gladys could develop into a top bodybuilder. A $200 an hour model in New York, she seemed reluctant to train too hardcore and perhaps spoil her commercial appeal. We convinced her, says Wheeler, that she was so attractive and well-proportioned that a few pounds of muscle could never ruin her looks. Besides, developing muscle is the hard part. If you want to get rid of it, all you have to do is diet and stop training. So Gladys trained for the Miss Olympia under the supervision of Ken and Mohammed. First, they had to be sure that she would be welcome in Montreal. They talked to Ben Weeder and Wayne D'Amelia. Yes, they were told Gladys was a professional in good standing, and she could be invited by the promoter's option. She spent the month of August in Toronto and another month in the fall just before the contest. Ken and Mohammed watched her train. She trained hard, they say, but not nearly hard enough. And just as important... She wasn't taking in enough calories to build the kind of muscle mass she needed for the biggest women's event of the year. Gladys has a fast metabolism, Mohammed Makawi explains. She's tremendously energetic and social, and she never stops moving, which means that she burns calories at a fantastic rate. The way she was eating, there wasn't enough left over to build muscle with. If Gladys was going to develop into a contender, all this had to change. She thought she was going to Toronto, but she ended up in Alcatraz. No more socializing, very little aerobics, and no dancing, not even when Tony Pearson showed up and asked her to go. Every calorie she consumed was put into her workouts. And the calories, mountains of protein, a pound and a half of steak at a sitting, platefuls of pasta, 
all of which might have made somebody else fat, but not mile-a-minute metabolism Gladys. On her, it came out as muscle. She also started training heavier than she'd ever believed possible, says Ken Wheeler. She trained slow and heavy, and then fast and just as heavy. Her workouts were longer than they'd ever been. Every time she began to adapt to the stress, Muhammad and I would increase the intensity. Training for Gladys became a serious full-time job for the first time in her life. But intense training not only calls for improved nutritional habits, it also means more rest and recuperation. When she wasn't training twice a day, Gladys stayed in her apartment, slept, ate three to four times a day, and watched TV. Mohammed learned from Vince Duranda a few years ago, says Ken, that you need to constantly evaluate and change your training program to get the best results. So that's what we did with Gladys. Every few days, she would pose for Mohammed. He would take a look at her strong and weak points and then make adjustments in her training routine. As a result, she went from 113 pounds to 128 pounds. Even at that weight, she was well-defined. But then we put her on a contest diet of Dover sole, chicken breast, and an enormous amount of supplements. She lost a few pounds those last few weeks, but she was still much bigger than she'd ever been. In August, Gladys had an 11 and a half inch bicep. At the contest, it measured 13 and a half, a gain of two full inches. She never had much triceps development before. She had lacked rear delts. Her legs had been too thin. But at the end of the training, she had shown market improvement in each of these areas. When Gladys came to the Miss Olympia, she came as a hardcore bodybuilder, living proof that to gain additional muscle, you have to train correctly, seriously, and intensely. And if you are an attractive woman to begin with, this added muscle only adds to your attractiveness. Good information, especially for those women in our sport who still think they are participating in a beauty contest and resist the idea of having to train like bodybuilders to look like bodybuilders. Gladys's plans are, for now, indefinite. She continues to be in demand as a model in New York. She has proved she can be a top 10 contender at the Miss Olympia. But with the Corey Eversons and Carla Temples of the sport, it's questionable whether she can crack the top five or wants to. Nor is it clear whether or not she has improved enough to partner with Mohamed Makawe in a mixed pairs event. But the future will take care of itself, as it always does. Meanwhile, Gladys Portuguese has succeeded in getting people to take her more seriously as a bodybuilder. She worked hard to earn the appreciation she received from the judges and from the rest of us on Olympia night. No matter what's in store for Gladys, nothing can take that accomplishment away from her. All right. So that was written by Bill Dobbins in the May 1985 issue of Flex Magazine. And I want to try to read that article about Gladys meeting Jean-Claude that we talked about in our interview. That came from a 1986 issue, I believe. So, Pat Comer, my friend for the podcast, if you're out there, Pat, if you got that issue, send that article over to me because I don't seem to have that on hand anymore. I I still got it at my parents' house. So, uh, yeah, send that to me, Pat, if you got it. I would love to read that for next week. All right, guys, that's it for the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Brian Moss. Until then, have a great Fourth of July weekend. Train hard, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.